Um, we're in Hebrews chapter 6, which is enough. It'll be enough for us this morning. It's, it is an explosive section of Scripture. Let me read it to you. It says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance, to their loss, they are, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks, that drinks in the rain often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those to whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He won't forget your, your work and, and the love that you've shown. Uh, you've shown him as you've helped the people and continue to help him. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who, are through, who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Jesus, I, oh gosh, we need you through this scripture. It is a controversial scripture. It's a scary scripture. It's, it's a difficult um, thing to hear. It's a difficult scripture. Jesus, will you lead us through it? Will you touch our hearts? Would you convict us? Would you woo us? Would you draw us close? Lord, we need you. Thank you for your example of your love and your selflessness and your kingdom, your sacrificial kingdom. Thank you. And Lord, give us the strength, the empowerment to follow in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is a scary scripture. This is one of the scriptures for me when I was a kid, drove me crazy. And there's one of the things that's, that's I think, a... Um, a tendency for us to do, especially as if you're a new believer, if you're a new Christian, and that is to take a, a scripture like this out of the context of the conversation that it's already in. It's really, really easy for us, and it's always a danger to forget the big picture when we're, when we're studying the Bible, and this is especially true of this particular section. So I need to back up a minute and review, kind of get a running start at this before we, so we can really get, it, get to it right. This letter, we, as we've talked about, we're, we've been in the book of Hebrews now for, I don't know how long, a month or so, um, a few months, and this letter was written to discouraged urban believers, a lot like us, with a Jewish background, for, um, and for several reasons, uh, some cultural, some social, um, they were feeling like giving up. They wanted to... to they were discouraged. They wanted to give up. They wanted to fall back. They felt like either turning their backs on Jesus or easing off on their fervor and sincerity and their passion for Jesus. So this letter was written to persuade these believers to keep going strong, to keep advancing the kingdom of God, to not be discouraged, to not give up, and to hold fast, to keep going. And the section that we're in today is, is really scary because it touches on many theological issues that are um, enigmatic, that are mysterious, that aren't so clear-cut, okay? And when it comes to any controversial passage in the Bible, it's really important 
not to mold and strong arm these passages into, into biased theological bents or perspective that we may have. That's really important. And we tend to do that because it, it's safer. If we can make a scary scripture that says something pretty plainly, if we can fit it into a theological mold or a theological system, it's safer for us that way. But we're not to treat, the reality is we, we can't do that. We're not to treat scripture like Play-Doh that can be molded into what we want it to say, into what we want it to believe. Rather, to the best of our ability, um, we've got to let the scripture speak for itself. And that's what we've got to do this morning. We've got to, we've got to take it for what it is. It's so tempting to conform controversial passages like this to systems of theology. So I'm inviting you this morning to kind of start new with me. Last week, we talked about going back to the elemental principles of the faith. He was saying, I can't go further with you until we get some other things established first. So we're already kind of in that mode of saying, let's, let's in some ways forget, let's get rid of the add-ons and the things that we think we know about the Bible, and let's just take this scripture for what it is this morning, okay? So today we're going to learn uh, three, th- we'll break it down to three things from this passage. One, how those it was written to were in danger of putting themselves into an impossible situation, into an impossible condition. That's what this is describing. Secondly, we're going to look at the hope that makes impossible things possible. And thirdly, we're going to look at how this hope changes our lives how we can move beyond the impossible situation and how it'll change our lives. But first, let's look at what kind of people he's writing to here. That's really important and that's, up to, that's, that's where a lot of debate is. Um, there are two characteristics that describe these people in our text. First, they have a very, very impressive spiritual resume, you could say. Okay, They have, impre- they have impressive spiritual experiences and they have impressive spiritual uh, credentials. You can see a list of about five things in verses four and five. They were once enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God, and and they've also tasted the powers of the age to come. In other words, of heaven coming. They've tasted it now. Okay, so five different characteristics. And if you put them together, we're describing a pretty impressive spiritual people here, if you put them together. Let's briefly, briefly look at each one um, just so we can get down, understand who we're talking about. First, it says they were once enlightened. That's the word, that's the Greek word photizo, where we get photograph in, um, in the Greek. The idea behind this is simply what, what we would think about in English, that light has been shined on them. Light has come into them. They are enlightened, okay? Um, light has come upon them. Where they were once in darkness, they've been brought into light. That's the description there, okay? Secondly, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Tasted, in other words, heaven is something that they've experienced and to a degree, taken into themselves. They've tasted the heavenly gift. Some people say that the word tasted um, means just a nibble. That's one way that I think people have tried to make this, this passage a little bit more comfortable for themselves. Well, they've just tasted it. They haven't fully digested it. So they're not really Christians because they've just, they've just tasted it. In other words, um, they've just di- di- dipped their toe in a little bit. 
And it could be understood that way, but however, any other place this word is used, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that. Um, any, uh, all the other places in Hebrews that the word tasted is used, is, it's used in a very strong way. Let me give you a few, an example. Um, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, this is talking about Jesus. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste, same word, death for everybody. Let me ask you, did, G- did Jesus just nibble on death for us? Or did he fully take it on for himself? He fully took it on. He ingested, or the way he put it in the garden, I'm gonna drink the cup, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink it all, all the way in. Um, so we have to take it for what it means. Partake, they're part, uh, thirdly, they're partakers of the Holy Spirit. Here's a unique phrase. Um, it's, the, it's the word uh, metaga, metakos in the Greek. Um, and it means to share in something. To be partakers of the Holy Spirit means to share in something or to partner with someone. It's been translated companion in chapter 1, verse 9. Um, it's been cha- translated partners in Luke, chapter 5, verse 7, talking about um, they were out fishing and they caught too many fish, so they hailed their partners to come and, and help them with the fish, okay? Um, so it means some kind of sharing with, some kind of fellowship with, some kind of participation with the Holy Spirit, with God himself. Then look at the two characteristics mentioned in verse five. They've tasted the good word of God. So they've experienced the goodness of God's word and they've received its work inside of them. They've experienced something of the power of the age to come. That's a really powerful phrase. So there are spiritual and supernatural experiences that have truly touched these people's lives, truly touched their lives. So when you take this list in totality and you just read it for what it is, as a kind of in face value, and put all five of these characteristics together, who, what kind of person is this describing? It's, and I mean, for me, it's describing a Christian. It's describing Christian people. Um, in fact, I'll say this, we would put this kind of a person in church leadership. The, the list that's described here is like a pastor's dream <laughs> to come and be in church leadership. It's, it, this, these people are incredible. Now, um, pastors, teachers, Bible scholars, seemingly everyone seems to have an opinion on this particular passage, um, whether it's describing a true Christian or not. Someone who is just seems like they, they, you know, they seem like that. Does this describe a true believer or a false believer? Is this a true, genuine Christian or someone, or maybe someone who genuinely thinks they're a true, genuine Christian? You know what I'm saying? We've met people like that before. They think they know what, what it means to be a Christian, but they're not quite there yet. But it would seem to me that a true face value reading of this passage is describing a Christian. And if it's not, well, then the, the, burden, of, the burden of proof is on, uh, is, on you to, is on you to say that it's something different. But if you take the passage for what it is, it's a Christian. Yes, it's, in, it's indisputable that someone can have a spiritual experiences and, and encounters and still not genuinely belong to Christ, for sure. I would agree with that. 
I understand that, but this passage seems to, I don't know if that, we don't know if this passage is describing someone like that. The passage itself certainly doesn't indicate that it's leaning in that direction. It seems to be describing a Christian. I think we can say that these people at least have the appearance of being believers. I think we can at least agree on that. We can't see their hearts. We can't make the judgment. All we have to go on is human perspective, but it seems as though the writer is describing a Christian. Secondly, we know in verse 6 that they fall away. Okay? And notice the important description or the important distinction here in verse 6. They haven't just fallen. What does it say? They've fallen away. That's a very important, the Greek language is a very specific language. It's a very important um, distinction there. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 24 that a righteous man falls seven times and gets back up again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. So if I could put that Old Testament proverb into New Testament vernacular, it would say the righteous fall and get back up, but the wicked fall away. There's an important distinction. It is possible, according to the Bible, for Christians to sin, for Christians to fall into addiction and even be somewhat conformed to the world, according to the Bible. There are people who dearly and sincerely love Jesus, and yet they really struggle with certain sins and behaviors that they can't seem to master. That's real. And I can tell you as someone who, um, my, for a living, I work with people, and, and I've been let into several of the holy of holies of people's lives and hearts. And I can tell you, I meet people that genuinely love Jesus. Genu- with all their heart, they've been transformed, and yet they have some dark struggles and things that they can't seem to um, win over. In fact, some 80% of the patriarchs and saints in the Bible are shown to fall into sin, and sometimes really gross sin. Okay? We have many case studies in the scriptures that are in line with this. Many of us have the idea that we should somehow reach the pinnacle of sinlessness by the time we end our lives. You know, that's what we have that kind of an idea. In other words, we think that Christians should progressively be getting better and better and better and better and better, and then we're, all, we're like nearly perfect before we die. But the Bible doesn't flesh it, flesh it out that way. You don't see that kind of cleanness in the Bible. And that's one thing that always drew me to the Bible, that I love about the Bible. The Bible is so real. You know, people say the Bible is just a a, a propaganda trying to purport a religion. Well, the the Bible puts things and details in there that are embarrassing that would not promote any religion. It would It would turn people off from religion. It's just telling the truth. People's lives are messy. That's just real. So there's falling, and that's a Christian thing. Christians fall. I fall. You fall. We fall into sin, right? Well, that's why we're, I mean, that's why we, we take communion. That's why we keep reminding ourselves of, the, of forgiveness in the Bible. But these, these people are in danger of falling away. This is a much more severe kind of a warning, Okay? Look, and look how severe the condition is. It says, if one does fall away from Jesus, again, we're just going to look at this 
passage for the way it is. Look what he's saying. He says, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. The word impossible in both the Greek and in English, by the way, is a word of emphasis. In the grammar, in the Greek here, this is an emphatic word. In other words, he didn't just, it's not a throwaway word that he just stuffed into the sentence. It's a, it's a word of emphasis. The idea, is that it, the idea is that it's to be emphasized that repentance is without possibility for these believers. In other words, there's no chance. I mean, this is just, this is Greek language, Greek grammar. This is what the original person that penned this letter meant by adding this word. It's not, in other words, it's not merely difficult, but inconceivable. It's not attainable. It's unachievable. It's unobtainable. This is a hopeless situation. It's crazy. Many people feel um, that we should take this figuratively instead of literally, and you understand why. It's super uncomfortable. When I was a kid, and I was just, uh, I was telling Nathan this the other night, when I was a kid and I was just a brand new believer, I ran into this verse, and you guys, I was so freaked out by this verse because I was still sinning that I rode my bike into town to the nearest Christian bookstore and I stayed there for hours reading the commentaries of this verse uh, in all the commentaries off the shelf, hoping there was some kind of hope for me because I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is me. What's happening here? And many people in those commentaries, and even today, think we should take this figuratively rather than literally, and I think it's because it's so uncomfortable. But when you take a look at the rest of Hebrews, and indeed the rest of the Bible, everywhere this word is used, it's used in the same way. It's pretty obvious. Let me, okay, let me just read a few to you. Here's Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18. It is, same word, impossible for God to lie. Does that mean it's really, really, really hard for God to lie? Or does that mean impossible? Yeah, okay. Let me read you another one. Here's Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Figurative or literal? Literal. I think it's literally impossible for the blood of a bull to take away sin. Here's Hebrews 11.6. It is impossible to please God without faith. Same word. It's impossible to please God without faith. Super hard or impossible? Impossible, yes. I think we can conclude that this isn't just talking about something that's really, really difficult. Like, man, you might be able to repent, but maybe, but probably not. You know, it's possible, but not probable. No, no, no. It's impossible to do, now, to do what? Again, let's just take it for what it is. It's impossible to do what? To renew them to repentance. Now, as a minister, I have to admit, and as someone who loves to read the Bible and study it carefully and then explain it to others, I find this verse alarming and scary when I was studying this, um, really studying it for the first time, I did not get bored. I found myself sitting on the edge of my seat, straight up in my chair, 
searching resources, studying the Greek, trying to figure it out. It had my absolute undivided attention. I wanted to know what this meant. The writer to the, to the Hebrews, under the inspiration of God, if we believe the Bible to be what it says it is, is telling us that there are some people out there that it's impossible for them to find repentance. Okay? Or that there is, or I think a better way to put it is that there's a repentance that God will not accept. There is a repentance that God will not accept. I find this disturbing because as a Bible teacher, I love to emphasize hope. There's always hope, right? The door is always open. If you're willing to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus and he'll forgive you and your sins will be forgiven, you put your trust in him and for what he's done for you, the door is wide open. And yet, in some sense, what he's telling us here is very strong. These are the strongest Greek terms that you can find. It's emphatic. There are some people for whom this repentance is impossible. Now, why? Let's break it down. Why? Why? Is it because their sin is too bad? Is that why? Some, you know, some people fear that. As if God is saying, okay, those sins there are cool. Those sins there, I can definitely cover those. But those particular sins, I'm not dying for that. You know? That one's really bad. You're way too gone. You've crossed some line out there, and that's the part that I'm not going to forgive. I think this controversial passage is best understood in its context. This is where we find the key to this. This is why we need to take a running start. This is why we can't take this out of context. Let's back up to what we studied last week, and let's get a running start at this. Let's start in verse 2 of chapter 6. He says, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying aside the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. The writer, as we talked about last week, is talking about retreating back to Judaism or back to the safe common ground that Christianity and Judaism have in common. Um, there was overlap. Here's Christianity, here's Judaism. They're separate, but there's some overlap in the middle, just like our culture in Seattle. There are things about Christianity that Seattle loves, that Seattle will agree with, that Seattle finds quite progressive and quite wonderful there are things about christianity there's a middle ground and last what we talked about is it was a warning against the danger of not wanting to be in constant confrontation with your culture so wanting to stay in the comfortable middle spot and just talk about that because if you notice the things missing from that list look at verse two again instruction about cleansing right or what well, actually let me back up not laying again the foundation of repentance from the acts leading to death of faith in god Instruction about cleansing rites, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Any, what's missing from that list? Anything about Jesus. Anything about dying on, him dying on the cross. Anything about sin. Those are the things that are controversial about Christianity, but that make Christianity uniquely and strongly Christian. But there are other things in the middle. And so what, what he's saying is that we're comfortable 
going out there into our culture saying, yeah, God loves. And it's true. God does love. Yes, we should, be, we should take care of our environment as, creation steward, as stewards of creation. Yes, we can agree with that. You know, be, be recycle and take care of those types of things. We can meet in the middle there. We can start with what we agree on. But the writer of the Hebrews was saying, don't stop there. If you leave out about sin and you owe a debt and Jesus paid it and rose from the dead, that's the grit, the power, the substance of Christianity that is the power to shake a culture. Okay, you guys, we're still in that conversation in this passage today. We're still there. The writer is talking about retreating back to Judaism or that common ground. There were things that both Christianity and Judaism had in common, and if these Christians just stayed there, they wouldn't be persecuted as much. They'd have a lot easier life. But the one important thing that they didn't have in common was the cross. The cross. Let me just cut to the chase here. This passage is saying that these people cannot be restored to repentance because they're repenting religiously. They're depending on their own, they're going back to an old system, their own morality, and there is no such thing as repentance for them. In other words, they're seeking it, seeking repentance through religious tradition and, they're, and seeking it through what they might do to save themselves. If you're, I mean, I'll, I'll bring it to our day and age. If you're seeking to fix yourself through some religious ritual or through, through your own morality, it's impossible to bring you to God like that. There is no repentance that way. Well, there are, there's no repentance that God will accept. If you're depending on your goodness, your church attendance, your reading of the Bible, your perfectly pure thoughts, your uh, you know, financial support, your blah, 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 if that is how you're truly thinking that you're going to get to God, that is unacceptable. It's impossible to get you to repentance like that. I can just see one of these New Testament believers, one of these New Testament Christians offering an animal sacrifice at the temple to make his, to make his or her family happy again. You know what I'm saying? That's what was going on here. They're going back to make sacrifices that are now obsolete because of Jesus. And the writer here is saying, don't think that that repentance is gonna get anything for you. Don't think that that kind of repentance is gonna do you a bit of good. Because it won't. So in context, it's impossible to renew anyone to repentance if they don't come to Jesus himself and if they don't rely on the cross, period. That is what makes you a Christian. Not your, how good you are or how great you are. You, we get that, right? What makes us Christians is the cross. The message to these Christians was clear. If you don't continue with Jesus, don't suppose that you're going to find salvation by going along with the ideas and experiences that Christianity and Ju Judaism happen to share in common. That's not going to get you there. It is impossible to save yourself. And that's what makes Christianity so different. Christians hope in something else. We are in a different arena Everyone else, everyone else, whether they're, quote, religious or not, by the way, everyone is trying to save themselves through their own ethics, 
through what they believe is right. Everyone has what I will call a religious heart, even if they're atheists. They have a religious heart. You talk to an atheist, you'll find that they're very moral. Very, very moral. They might say, give you the line, well, they're just following the mores of society. What society has chosen to be ethical, that's what we've all decided as our, as our evolution continues. We've decided that this is what will continue our species and, and all of those types of things. But the logic quickly falls apart when you find other societies that have thrived and have been extremely um, uh, uh, intelligent societies, modern societies that have done incredibly atrocious things, Nazi Germany being one of them one of the most educated nations in the world at that time, cultured, yet committing genocide. Was that right because their society deemed it to be so? Or uh, saying that ethics is what, you know, ethics is what we make of it. Ethics is what we all decide. I was talking to a man at one point and I said, he was trying to argue with me that ethics is what we all decided to be as a society. And I said, so if it was okay in this society for someone to sneak up, seduce your six-year-old daughter, take her away, and routinely sexually abuse her, that would be in the society. And he, he, um, his body, he, he, went like, he went like that. And I said, that, your body innately knows that that is wrong. Your body just reacted because your spirit knows. <laughs> your spirit knows that there are some things that are just wrong no matter who says what, no matter what anyone says. We're all trying to save ourselves. We're all trying to be good in our own way. Christians live in a completely different arena. Look at verse 9. It says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you, as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end, here it is, so that your hope, for, so that what you hope for may be realized. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit what has been promised. The true Christian has a hope that anchors him or her um, and keeps us strong in the midst of, of a storm. In verse 11, he says that he wants them not to give up on what they are hoping for. And then he explains this hope more fully in verse 19 and 20. Look at verse 19, he'll explain it more. He says, we have this hope He's still talking about the same one. We have this hope. Here it is. As an anchor for the soul. We have a hope, Christians, as an anchor for the soul. And he says it's firm and secure. And it's tied to something. Look what it's tied to. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus Christ, has entered on our behalf. The true Christian has a hope that anchors him or her to something firm but unseen, something that enters the presence of God behind the veil. You can picture in your mind, can't you? Uh, a Christian and a, a chain, like with an anchor that goes behind the veil and it's, it's anchored in something, behind a curtain. That's, that's the picture here. In Jewish thought, 
you know this, the inner sanctuary was where the very presence of God was. And in the temple, it it was partitioned by a huge curtain or veil, a huge veil. Every Jewish person knew that only one person could enter into God's presence and only once a year. And that person was the high priest. Remember, he was going to get more into this with Melchizedek and the Aaronic priesthood, but he said, I can't right now. Now he's starting to get back into it again. That's why the priesthood conversation is so important because it's where our anchor is. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through this veil into the very presence of God. Think of that. A human being able to approach God's presence, his pure, holy presence on on behalf of all the people. They would actually, um, tradition says that they would tie a rope to the high priest's leg with a bell And if the bell stopped jingling, it meant the guy was dead. He wasn't cleansed. He didn't perform the rituals correctly. He wasn't acceptable in God's presence. And God's presence just fried him. And they had to drag the guy out. God is light, the Bible says. What what is the purest form of light? Anybody know? It's a laser. Laser, a laser beam is so pure, it's able to carry amazing amounts of information. That's one way that we use laser. But it's also, it, can, it burns through anything impure in its way. It can burn through things, see through things. Imagine God. The Bible says he is light. He is the most pure form of light. If you're not pure, it's a scary thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? Right? He would go into the presence to make atone for the people, this high priest, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, on the altar, in the, 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 um, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat lid on top. He would sprinkle blood on behalf of the people. In other words, he'd come with a vicarious substitute to make atonement on behalf of the people waiting outside, and people would be waiting for this high priest to emerge again. And if that high, when that high priest emerged, he would say, party time. He would say, we can celebrate because it meant God accepted this sacrifice for our sins and our year's sins are absolved completely. There's no more debt between us and God. We have perfect fellowship with him again and they would celebrate and they would feast and they would eat and it was this incredible time of joy on Yom Kippur because it meant we're forgiven The main, most important relationship in the cosmos has just been made right again. That's what it meant. And the writer to the Hebrews is pointing here, he's saying, that all pointed to Jesus, the ultimate high priest. Jesus was the lamb who was slain. And he's the high priest that brought his blood before his own vicarious substitute. He's the priest that became the lamb. (laughs) And he was crucified and he went into the presence of God and, you know, he was raised. Interesting, in John uh, chapter 21, wherever the resurrection account is in the the gospel of John, it shows them entering into the tomb where Jesus was not and there was a slab where Jesus' body was laid and two angels, John says very specifically, sitting on each end 
of this slab where Jesus' body would have been laid. Two angels sitting on the side. What would the high priest have seen when he went into the, into the presence behind the curtain? He would have seen a, a lid, a slab, and two cherubim in gold on the ends with blood. Perhaps, and there's Jesus' bloody uh, clothing that he was wrapped in for his burial. Atonement has been made, except the high priest is not there. He's risen. He's come out. The resurrection means that we are forgiven and it's party time. <laughs> it means we can celebrate. And that, that, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, is our hope that anchors us. Not your, your good deeds, not this or that. Not your good deeds on one side of the coin or your failures on the other. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in Jesus, the high priest who went beyond the veil. And that's it. That's what makes you a Christian. Not that you agree that we should recycle, as important as that may be. Not that we, that we should clean up neighbors' yards. That's important too. Not that we should be caring for people less for That's all important. But that's not what makes us Christians. People, anybody can do those types of things. What makes us Christians is that our hope is in Jesus. That's what the resurrection means. And that's where our anchor is at. The only way that repentance is acceptable to God is through Jesus. Because Jesus has a perfect, sinless nature in life, he has entered into God's presence for you and for me. And I'll just say this, and the writer of the Hebrews knows this. This is the only thing that will get you through this life. If your value, identity, sense of security is founded in your own performance, either good or bad, you will be eaten alive in this life, whether you're a Christian or not. Why? Well, on one hand, there's always more you could do. Right? We, I, you know, I think um, I was talking to my friend Dave who, all, who lives in Portland, right downtown Portland. And we were saying, I think people who live in a city, in an urban setting, get this more, more than anyone. We were comparing our times in the suburbs versus in, in the city. And we, we see hopelessness in a city on such a large scale. We see hurt and uh, addiction and stuckness on such a large scale that we feel insignificant most of the time. <laughs> you know, there's that um, saying in uh, The Lord of the Rings where the king of Rohan says, what can we do in the face of such evil? And so, you know, he's feeling overwhelmed in this moment. He's being surrounded, you know, Orcs and the bad guys are about to overwhelm his stronghold at Helm's Deep. And he's feeling so over... He's just feeling like, what can we... I think that's a pretty fair description of when we think about the problems in Seattle. I don't think you have to be a Christian to feel that way. It's one thing we all have in common. What can we do? We can throw millions of dollars at the problem. I'm thinking specifically of homelessness. We've th we threw millions... I think it was 13 million, 20 million dollars at homelessness. We are now third in the nation behind New York and Los Angeles when it comes to homelessness. It, has, it was like putting fertilizer on. It was like it just grew exponentially. 
We can educate. We can tax. We can pass laws. And yet, and yet, and I think anybody just kind of goes, what do we do? What do we do, right? We understand that. So on the one hand, if you're depending on your works, your tax dollars, your legislation, your government, your own good deeds, your own uh, energy, you're going to run out of energy. I'll I'll just um, confess. I walked out there. There was a man behind the dumpster last week in the middle of shooting heroin. He was having an extremely bad reaction to it. I had no idea what to do for him. I asked him what to do. It was like 2 in the morning, and I'll just be... Be honest with you, I was so tired that I went home. I feel so sad about that. I didn't have the energy in me to contribute. Because I run out. I run out of gas. I think, you know, I, when I run out of gas, I think about myself. I just want to go home and go to sleep. I've been working since two in the morning. I'm exhausted. But here's a life. Someone's little boy at some point. A man with talent. A man with um, dreams at some point in his life when he was a kid. I have a little boy that dreams of being a a policeman someday. He just wants to have a fun life, a good life, contribute. That man had dreams at one point in his life. Better than, he's, he's meant for more than sitting behind a dumpster, stuck, and I drove away. I'll tell you what, you guys, if my identity was, was founded in my helping people, I'd be destroyed. I wouldn't be able to stand before you this morning. It tore me up. I was convicted to my core. But I stand here because that, my hope is not in myself. My hope is in Jesus and what he's done for me. That's where my hope is. And this transcends, this is just anybody. This transcends Christian or not Christian. If your value is in yourself, if your structure of salvation is in your own moral code or your own ethics, even if you've made them up and they are for you, you're either gonna succeed to the point of pride and look down on everybody else that hasn't, or you're going you're gonna to fail and, and be condemned. The only way to survive is an anchor in the one man that didn't turn away from that man. Who even though he was tired and out of gas, crawled his way onto that cross and was nailed there. And poured out every ounce he had left. Went without sleep. Went without food. Didn't have a place to lay his head. Born into subjugation. On the run. On the road. And gave 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 until his last breath went out on that cross. That's where my hope is. Not in me. When I was uh, in college, um, a kid at the Bible college in Marietta, I might have told you this story already, but I'll never forget it. He committed suicide on our, on our campus. 
and I knew him. And the last person to see, it just shook our campus, the last person to see this young man alive was Chuck Smith. The afternoon, or the morning before the young man had committed suicide, he went to Costa Mesa. And Chuck gave a sermon, and he waited in line to see Chuck. You know, because everyone wants to see Chuck after a sermon. And he waited and waited and waited. And he talked to Chuck, and he said, Chuck, is there anything I can do to pray for you? This young man said that to Chuck. Can I pray for you, Chuck? And Chuck was so tired and wanted to get to lunch that he blew him off, and he left. That afternoon, that young man went out and committed suicide. And Chuck Smith came to our school, and he, he had a school assembly, and he said this whole story. And he said, I, I, honestly, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. I was hungry. I was tired. I could tell he was a very needy fellow, and he was. The whole f- school felt guilty because he was a very needy person. You know, you just wanted to avoid him pretty quickly. You had about a five, seven-minute threshold with a guy before you were getting uncomfortable and you wanted to move on. I mean, you know. And Chuck was feeling that, and he confessed that, and it was, you know, 600 people there. You could hear a pin drop, and then Chuck got that famous Chuck Smith big smile on his face, and he said, but I, my hope is that there is no condemnation for those that know that love Jesus and are called according to his purposes. And I'll tell you what, I felt something spiritual release in that auditorium that day. Like guilt was lifted because we remembered where our hope was. Even though we had failed this young man, we had. We had failed him. We were too selfish to deal with him. We were too young and immature. And even our leader, Chuck Smith, had failed him. We remembered where our hope is. It's not in Chuck. It's not in Calvary Chapel. It's not even in ourselves. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. And that's what this guy is saying. He's saying that is where our hope is. And you know, no, there's a reason that, guy, this, that the writer to Hebrews is saying this because no anchor is needed in calm, tranquil seas, right? He's saying life is a storm. He's saying there are rocks ahead. There are winds in this life that are strong enough to break apart your vessel. He's being straight with you here. Life is hard. It has a way of chewing up even the strongest of us and spitting us out. That's why I love the Bible. He he's just shoots straight. The Bible just straight at you. Here it is. Yeah, there are dangers. There is a repentance that's impossible. There are things you need to avoid. There, there are things, don't, don't put your head in the sand. People do walk away from the faith. People do, Christians do do horrible things. How are you gonna survive this life that's just tearing, tearing, tearing us apart? Well, an anchor that's in Jesus, in Jesus alone. This is what he gives. This is what the Bible gives to those of us that are going through really, 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 really hard times. And some of your, I know enough of you now to know that some of your, your lives, your entire life has been a really, 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 really hard time. Some of you have some really painful, horrific stories and, it, and it's, you haven't gotten a break. From the time you've been born, it's been one hit after another and this is what the bible gives an anchor in the presence of god for hope 
He says land drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful for those to whom it is farmed and receives a blessing from God. But that land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. Ooh, strong word, cursed and burned. uh, Smacks of John the Baptist language, doesn't it? Remind you of some, doesn't it remind you of that? Uh, in Luke, I think, he says, uh, here's John the Baptist. He said to the crowds, the religious crowds that were coming out, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. All right, tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. And here it is, John the Baptist, he's this fiery guy. From now, from now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into a fire and burned. The writer of the Hebrews is using very similar language here. He's talking about two different kinds of repentance. Let me just break it down and we're, and we're done. First, there's religious repentance. And in religious repentance, our hope is to live a good enough life for God to bless us. That's what we're doing. Therefore, every instance of sin, that when we sin, it's traumatic, unnatural, unnatural, and horribly threatening because we're trying not to sin. So when we do, it hits harder. You know what I'm saying? Because we're not supposed to do that. And when we do, only under great duress does a religious person admit that they've sinned. If it's I'll just be blunt. If it's hard for you to apologize, if it's hard for you to face your own problems or to admit that you've done something wrong, there's a good chance you may want to investigate that your repentance is often a religious or moral one because there's a lot more writing on your sin. Therefore, it's detrimental for you to face it. But if if your repentance is based on the gospel... When you sin, what are you going to do? If your repentance is, if you're founded on good theology and the Bible, when you sin, what are you going to say? You're going to go, that's about right. (laughs) You're going to say, yeah, that's why Jesus came and died for me right there. It's about right. And don't get me wrong, you won't be cavalier about it. It'll it'll hurt, and we'll get into that in a second. But it but it won't be it won't. Be this, I can't believe I did that. When people come and confess to me, there's this air sometimes of, I can't believe I did that. And I'm like, why not? Because I think I'm above that, see? Or I should be. That's religion. Secondly, religious repentance is cursed by God because it's self-righteous. I've already alluded to this a little bit. Repentance can easily become a form of atoning for your sin. Religious repentance often becomes a form of self-flagellation in order to convince God and ourselves that we truly are sorry this time. You know, I get the, point, the picture that Martin Luther described when he went to Rome. And he saw people, do you remember the scene that he described when he went to Rome and he was having this big revolution turning point in his life? He goes to Rome and he sees these crippled people crawling one step and then repenting, and then crawling another step, and then repenting, and then crawling another step, all the way up this, these steps, and repenting every step of the way, beating themselves, hurting themselves. Martin Luther used to torture himself over his sin, thinking, I need to prove to myself and to God that I'm really sorry, so I'll punish myself for it. 
Finally, religious repentance is worthless to God because it's self-centered. In religion, we are only sorry for our sin because of the consequences that are coming to us. It will bring us punishment, and we want to try to avoid consequences and punishment at all costs, so we repent. Thus, in religion, repentance is extremely self-centered. It's about me. I'm not repenting because my sin breaks God's heart, and I have a relationship with someone that I love, and I don't want to hurt them. I'm repenting because of me. Gospel repentance, on the other hand, is not self-centered. It's God-centered. The gospel tells us that sin cannot bring us into condemnation. So we're taken out of the equation. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Sin can, there, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Another, another, another Greek phrase that's very precise. Zero. None. Zilch. No, there's no condemnation. If you came in here feeling condemned and you're a Christian, it's just a feeling. You can dismiss it. Because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Therefore, why do we feel bad then when we sin? Because of what it does to God. Because we're in love with Him. It pleases and dishonors, it displeases and dishonors Him. Thus, where religious repentance is self-centered, God's repentance, gospel repentance, is God-centered. Gospel repentance is not self-righteous, but focuses on the righteousness of Jesus. In the gospel, we know that Jesus suffered and was miserable for our sin. We don't need to make ourselves suffer in order to merit forgiveness. We simply receive the forgiveness earned by Christ and move on. 1 John 1.8 says that God forgives because he's just. Did you notice that? Really striking. In other words, he doesn't say because he's kind or gracious, although those things are true. He forgives us because, in other words, it would be unjust for God, to, to, for, for God not to forgive us. Why? Because Jesus took the, ju- the, inju- the justice that we deserve on the cross. God would be demanding two payments. <laughs> One that Jesus already paid and then another one from us. It wouldn't be fair. It'd be unjust. So it says God is just to forgive you. Finally, gospel repentance produces fruit that is sweet rather than thorns and thistles. The knowledge of our acceptance in Jesus makes it easier to admit that we're flawed. We can be real. We can be real. Because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sin. There's no fear of condemnation anymore. So we can just come out with it. The more you see your own flaws and sins, the more precious God's grace appears. Um, Martin Luther prayed this. He said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, repentance for a believer is a lifestyle. Why? Why can we repent and embrace that level of humility? Because we're not afraid of being rejected anymore. And I'll just say, someone asked me at one point when I was teaching a class, they asked me, what's the key to becoming smarter? Not that I'm so smart that I would know, but the only thing I could come up with at the time, and I think it was actually, looking back, I'm like, okay, that was pretty darn good. It's um, admit that you're not smart. 
Because you know what I'm saying? If you think you're smart, then you have nothing else to learn. You can't see other things. But if you can admit that you don't know everything, well, then you can be curious and you can learn more things and you can learn. I think that's probably one of the biggest detriments to repentance is when you can't admit that you've done something wrong. I think that's, in fact, just my personal opinion, I think that's more dangerous than the actual thing that you've done wrong. I think that's more dangerous than the actual addiction that you might have or the actual tendencies that you might have. I think it's more dangerous to dig your heels in and just refuse to admit that you've done something wrong because then God can't help you. What does the Bible say? God resists pride and he gives grace to the humble. How can you be humble? But you're not, there's no condemnation. You don't have to be afraid that God's gonna squish you or reject you. That's not gonna happen. Therefore, you can come and be, and be honest. I blew it again, Lord. I did it again. And that's the anchor that's of our soul. Otherwise, you don't have this, you're gonna get ripped apart. Let's take communion this morning and remember the anchor that is the cross. Jesus, thank you for this anchor that is stable and secure through all the ups and downs and the failures of the times that I run out of gas, the times I don't do it right, and the times that I do, I don't get puffed up and filled with myself. Lord, I'm only here because of your cross, period. And I'm still a mess. And we live in a messy world. Like, like Isaiah, I can say, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm living with a people of unclean lips. Lord, we, I'm, that's, that's the truth. I pray, God, that you would forgive us. Thank you that we are forgiven. And thank you that our hope is in you, not in ourselves. And may we repent of religious repentance. May we repent of trying to even out the scores on our own and come to you only based on what you've done for us. All other repentance, Lord, is impossible. We come to you now in Jesus' name, amen.